Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. This episode is Volume 5. My name is Dana Buckler, and I'm, of course, joined by my regular co-host, Mike. How are you today? I'm doing well, Dana. Thanks. Excellent. We are going to be joined by another special guest. This will be the fourth time that this guest has made an appearance on this podcast, and I'm thrilled to have him part of the 20th Century Movie Club. So listeners, please help me welcome back my friend, Adam Risky. Adam, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me back, Dana. Absolutely, man. Thanks for doing this. So, Adam. Yeah, my pleasure. You know the rules of the game. Each of us are going to take a turn recommending a movie that was released before the year 2000. With that being said, Adam, I want to turn the first pick of Volume 5 of the 20th Century Movie Club over to you. The floor is yours. So with my first pick, I, I don't know why I said it that way. It's like I'm drafting it, like in the NBA draft. Um, anyways, so the first movie I'm selecting is 1998's Rounders, directed by John Dahl and starring Matt Damon and Edward Norton. Rounders is the story of a law student uh, who is more adept at being a high-stakes poker player and with a specialty in No Limit, Texas Hold'em. This was released in 1998, right around the time of the big kind of boon period of Matt Damon's career. He's, he kind of came onto the scene in 1996 with Courage Under Fire. And then, of course, his, his stardom kind of hit superstardom with Goodwill Hunting. And around this time, he played a lot of similar characters, um, ones that were the protagonist who also had the narration portion of the film, such as in Rounders or in in John Grisham's The Rainmaker, which is also very good and I would recommend. And this was kind of his big, like, I'm a young guy bravado moment. He's paired in this movie with Edward Norton, who is also going through kind of a similar period in his career, too. Those two were sort of kind of building up their their mystique as like the great generate or the next generation of great young actors. Rounders tells the story of this law student. He's at odds with his girlfriend who's played by Gretchen Maul, who wants him to stop gambling um, and to become a more respectable member of society as a lawyer. And Matt Damon just has this impulse to keep going back to the table and to keep gambling. The cast is that is like totally stacked. It's, uh, Damon, Norton, Maul, um, you got John Turturro, John Malkovich playing this crazy Russian uh, stereotype gangster. It's very amusing. Yeah, it's one of those movies that if it's on cable, I have to stop and watch it. It's a complete remote dropper movie. So I've probably seen it. 20 times, and I could watch it at any given moment. Mike, I'm going to turn this one over to you first, because, of course, the character in this movie is a law student. So give me your take on Rounders. I, I absolutely love Rounders. I love this pick. It was it was on my list. I kind of feel like as a society, we just up and decided we were going to stop talking about John Dahl. And I have no idea why, because prior to Rounders, he also did Red Rock West and The Last Seduction, which are two of the best like modern film noirs you will ever see. Uh, I love this movie. I, yeah, Damon's character is a law student, but there's so little law related in this movie that it's, you know, there's basically, uh, without getting into spoilers, there's kind of one scene where he's impressing a lot of law professors and that's kind of about it. And, uh, but as just a, an acting showcase for, 
him and Ed Norton, as well as a really fairly interesting portrayal of kind of call it, I guess, heroic addiction, because Damon's character isn't necessarily the most sympathetic main character for the movie. He seems like it in the way the movie plays it. But if you take a step back and think about it, it's kind of like this guy might need some help. But nonetheless, it is a absolutely like riveting movie to watch. The card scenes are as tense as any sort of drama heavy action scene you will ever see in a movie. And Adam's right. Malkovich is he's making some choices in this movie. Uh, Let's just put it that way. And I love every one of the choices that he's making. I'm going to be the one who's only seen this movie once or twice. It must be because I don't have cable. Otherwise, I think I would probably catch it up, catch up on it a little bit more. So I have more or less just fragmented memories. But Adam, I'm going to ask you a quick question. 1998, was this when the big pokers on every channel boom happened? Or was this a little bit earlier? Did this predate the big poker craze? I think it was right around the same time. Um, I don't know for sure, but I know that one of my classmates in high school and we were we were like juniors and seniors when Rounders was out. So like one of them uh, after high school became a professional card player. And I'm sure that he saw Rounders and like thought that this was the idea for him. Yeah. And I've read in the just some doing some research on the movie. That's not uncommon. This was known amongst poker players as being kind of the definitive poker movie that's been put on film thus far. And a lot of younger players saw inspiration from this movie into launching their careers as professional uh, card players. And just like, I I, I wanted to second Mike, um, John Dahl, he doesn't have like the longest filmography a lot. He's done a lot of television in, in recent years, but yeah, those that, re- that, one two punch of Red Rock West and Last Seduction are are very strong. And then after Rounders, he did um a thriller called Joyride with Steve Zahn and Paul Walker and Lily Sobieski. And that's really terrific. I think it's it's very similar to Duel. If you like Duel, you'll probably like this one too. And one thing that I wanted to point out about Rounders um is this movie is what I would phrase as douche-tastic. It's like he's got like, you know, he's he's name-dropping all these colorful characters in his environment. So he's like, oh yeah, that's Joey Kanish, or this is Worm, or this is Grandma, or this is Teddy KGB. But it's like the movie Boiler Room, which I also absolutely adore, that it's so full of bravado that it's hard to kind of resist, even if you feel a little bit embarrassed giving yourself over to it. It reminds me, along with with the Matt Damon character, this reminds me a lot of Tom Cruise's 80s I'm Awesome period. It's basically like every scene of the movie, everybody thinks Matt Damon's awesome. It's like the judges and the district attorneys and the lawyers, they're like, wow, this kid's awesome. Or like the gamblers, they're just like, man, I'm good, but not like this kid. He's awesome. Or like all the women are just like, man, I really want to get with him because he's so awesome. So it's like a total male fantasy thing. But I think as 
kind of like a Top Gun narrative, it really works. It's a really fun movie. It's interesting because this movie, I was just looking it up as you were you're talking about it, and, and my suspicion was, and it was correct, that this was not a box office success. This movie was made for a little over $10 million, took in about $23 million, which by any stretch of the imagination, when you take in you know the amount of money you have to spend to market a film, it wasn't the success I think they were hoping for. And I, I don't feel like Matt Damon was, I mean, he, by that point, he had done Goodwill Hunting. He was, you know, he'd won an Oscar. I, I'm wondering if either of you have any thoughts on why this movie wasn't successful, because my memories of it were that it was a pretty entertaining film. Mike, I'll turn it over to you first. Uh, well, first of all, it was a relatively modest movie. I mean, it was never going to be, uh, I think, a major blockbuster. John Dahl's sensibilities just don't really, at least in film, he's done, as Adam said, he's done a lot of TV work and he's done a lot of TV work on your favorite television shows, whatever they may be. John Dahl's probably directed episodes on it, but his movies tend to be, I mean, I don't think he ever had a movie other than Joyride that you would consider to be a box office success. I mean, Red Rock West, I'm not even sure what kind of theatrical release that got. I know I saw it because it came out when I was working a blockbuster, and that was when I was seeing every Nicolas Cage movie, which isn't really any different than today. But nonetheless, that was, you know, that was when how I saw it. Last Seduction got a, an art kind of art theater indie film distribution. So I just think there's a, a sense of not a big push for these types of movies. And like Adam said, it's really in a good way, which sounds weird. It's really douche-tastic. Um, and so I think it may have just kind of kept quite a few people out. I think the authenticity, I, I know, I remember years ago when it came out, there was a big GQ article on it about how the writers had actually gone to all these underground illegal poker tournaments to kind of watch it and get the lingo down. But because of that, the authenticity makes it kind of a dense movie. If you know nothing about poker, there's a lot of lingo and the movie's not really interested in explaining what they are. You know, you're expected to know what three stacks of high society is and you can figure it out from the context. But if you're just looking for a movie to just kind of take you away for a while, this is probably not one of them if, unless you really kind of vibe on that sense. One other thing I did want to say, if I do have one criticism, and I'll just say this really quickly of the movie, Gretchen Maul, both uh, what she's given to do as an actress and the character, she's really kind of let down by this movie. I mean, she's the one weak link. I don't blame her. I just think she's sort of the supportive girlfriend that ends up not being supportive. And if you've watched any of John Dahl's other movies, supportive girlfriends are not his strong suit. He really does well with, you know, sort of femme fatale. Supportive girlfriends are not his strong suit. I think that's the one criticism. If if I was going to tell somebody to watch this movie, I'd say, be prepared. She's not great in the movie. Her character's not great. Adam? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll answer your question too, Dana, but to, to kind of second what Mike's saying. Um, yeah, so Gretchen Maul at this time was, I, I always joke with like friends that I knew back then that it's like it girl, Gretchen Maul. You can never just call her Gretchen Maul. It was always like she was the it girl. She was like the one that they were kind of positioning to be a star of some stature, like a Nev Campbell type back then. And um, yeah, she's really done no favors by the character as written. There's nothing really wrong with her performance, but she has to be, her function in the movie is to be 
the person that nags Matt Damon from doing what he should be doing as his true calling. And there's even characters that are there to basically counterbalance her, like Martin Landau's professor mentor at the law school, who basically is just like, you have no choice. You have to be a card player. Like, it doesn't matter that, like, you want to be a lawyer and things like that. You have to, and he uses, like, a comparison of how he was ordained basically to go into become a rabbi in the Jewish faith. Um, but his calling was being a lawyer. So it's like he had no choice either. So he sees a kindred spirit in a way with Matt Damon. Um, I've seen Gretchen Maul in other movies where she is very good. Like the notorious Betty Page is a really strong movie with a terrific lead performance by her. But yeah, she kind of fall fell into that kind of bubble with a lot of actresses in the late nineties who they just had their shot and it was brief. It was like one or two years. And then because they didn't become Julia Roberts right away, they sort of were cast by the wayside, which is unfortunate. As far as why the movie wasn't more successful, it came out in early September. Um, that's always kind of a weird period because it's like you don't know what you have. It's not necessarily an Oscar contender. Otherwise, it would have played festivals. It would have held out for the Toronto Festival or or something, and then like had an Oscar qualifying kind of run in October, November, December. Um, but you kind of put in in early September the ones where it's like, okay, this is a drama for adults, but we don't really know if it's an awards player, and it's not necessarily going to attract this mainstream audience because it's about poker. So you have to be interested in poker or really that big of a Matt Damon fan. So I think it was just never fated to be a big theatrical success more than a cult favorite on home video, which it ended up turning out to be. Good first pick, Adam. Off, Thank you. We're off and running. Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you for your first pick of the episode. So this first pick for me is is a movie I've actually, I'm really kind of hesitant to even mention because it's for a variety of reasons it's a movie that is it's one of my all-time absolute favorite movies it's a movie that is very special just to me personally because of the time it came out the time i saw it i was basically almost the exact same age as the characters in the movie and i was going through a lot of the exact same sorts of things so it's a movie that i think has some some serious criticisms that that people have been able to sort of bring to it and i don't think they're necessarily wrong but for me this is just a movie that i think is is absolutely wonderful it's completely one of the most i think quotable movies ever made and if you have criticisms of it that's great this is one of those movies where I, I don't want to hear it don't at me about him because i love this movie and i and i just am you'll never be able to change my mind on this movie and the movie is 1995's kicking and screaming from noah Baumbach. have either of you guys seen this one adam no i've not i've seen a few of his movies but not that one i i'm also in the camp that i have not seen this movie please tell us a little bit more about it Sure. So it's it's Bombach's first movie. And, and for those who the name doesn't ring a bell, you may have seen some of his other movies. Uh, the Squid and the Whale is kind of his most uh, accepted, you know, critically adored one. He's made a lot of other movies. He uh, his partner in at least I believe they're still partners. I, I don't follow the Bombach gossip all that much is Greta Gerwig. They've made a lot of movies together. Uh, she starred in some of his. Uh, he kind of helped. uh 
with Lady Bird getting that off the ground. He's also done a lot of work with Wes Anderson. He co-wrote uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. This is his first movie. And what I really like about this one is it's about a group of friends who graduate from college right at the start of the movie. And as soon as they graduate, for lack of a better term, existential malaise immediately sets in. None of them really have jobs. None of them are really sure what they're going to do. And so it's about these friends over the course of the next year as they kind of figure out what the next stage of their life is going to be. One of them, without getting into too many spoilers, one of them re-enrolls in school because he's trying to capture, you know, he doesn't want to let that go. One of them is rich and so he just kind of sits around and is snarky and cynical uh, throughout the whole thing. Uh, The main character played by Josh Hamilton, who for those who don't know Josh Hamilton, he has been a consistently good actor for 20 plus years now. Just even this year, he played the dad in eighth grade and he was great in that. And he's one of those actors that's never kind of broken through, but is always good in everything that he does. He and his girlfriend break up right at the start of the movie because she's going to Prague. He just sort of tries to sleep and drink his way through her memory. And the movie's structured in an interesting way where it sort of flashes back to the start of their relationship as it goes through the movie. It is incredibly witty. Uh, the dialogue is is just as sharp as anything Bombach's ever written. Uh, it's as sharp, you know, this came out really in sort of the height of that 90s indie dialogue-driven witty comedy, you know, Kevin Smith, stuff like that. And this really has that same kind of of vibe and that same kind of dialogue. Uh, I love this movie so much. What I really love about it is Bombach has, as time has gone on, he's gotten to be generous, cynical. Uh, he's very much in sort of the New York art scene in his movies. He just, his most recent one uh, was a Netflix original called The Meyerowitz Stories with Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler, which is very good, but his movies tend to have a real cynical edge to them. This one has a sense of optimism that I think is not present in most of his work. It, it really is just kind of a, a a delightful little film, and and it's one of the best ways I can describe it. Roger Ebert, when he reviewed it, basically just said, look, there's nothing fancy or special about this movie. It's just made up of a bunch of people that I liked spending an hour and a half with. I liked listening to these people talk. I enjoyed their conversations. They're people that I liked spending time with. And there's really no better way I can describe the movie than I love spending time with the characters in this movie. I would actually kind of argue it's Bombach's best movie uh, that he sort of unfortunately peaked with his first movie. He's still done a lot of great work. The one other little interesting bit of trivia I would add is the associate producer and the person who helped get it made at the time was Bombach's roommate. Uh, And he really, he was wanted to go into film production. And so he really kind of took the lead on getting this made. And he's a dude by the name of Jason Bloom which most of you are probably hopefully familiar with as the uh, the founder of Blumhouse, I should say Jason Blum, the founder of Blumhouse Productions, which has had nothing but a string of hits over the last decade. So it's an interesting little snapshot into the history of Jason Blum as well as Noah Baumbach. But I really, if you like 90s indie comedies, this is one that I can't recommend highly enough. It's funny because as you were talking about it, I've of course got IMDb open up on my phone and I 
I put in kicking in screaming and I picked up picked up the first uh, the first title and it was a 2005 film starring Will Ferrell, Robert Duvall, Mike Ditka, and Josh Hutcherson. And I was like, oh, uh, okay, so we're uh, we're talking about a soccer movie. Like I just for a second there, that's what I thought you were talking about. So. Yeah, it happens, and that's first of all that movie's. It's not for me. And secondly, it ruined the the Google searches for sure. the uh, Bombach. You've got to search kicking and screaming 1995 now, which is very frustrating. Absolutely. So, I, of course, I've just wrote that down. I'm adding it to my list. At one point, Ashley mentioned to me that we need to do a couple, you know, follow up episodes of the show where we discuss the films that we mentioned that we hadn't seen on these on these episodes. So I'm looking forward to doing that. So for my first pick of the day. I decided I was going to do a George Roy Hill film. Now, George Roy Hill is a wonderful director. He's made some fantastic movies. And the question was, which one of his films could I recommend first? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Sting. You know, I'm originally from Canada, so I really like hockey. So do I do Slapshot? But no, I've decided that in keeping with uh, sort of the theme I set up with uh, Chevy Chase, in the last episode, I want to recommend 1988's Funny Farm. Now, Funny Farm is your typical fish-out-of-water story. It tells the story of uh, Chevy Chase's character, Andy Farmer, and he is a sports writer in New York City who decides to move out to the country with his wife to write a novel. Now, I don't want to get, again, I don't like to get too far into plot details of this one, but it just one of the things I love about this film, and something I think is really hard to pull off these days, is the fact that this is a comedy that I think is absolutely hilarious. It also has a ton of heart, but it's rated PG. And it's very rare these days, I think, to find a comedy that is rated PG that will appeal to adults. More and more, we have to sort of push the edge. We have to go heavy PG-13, hard R sometimes to get the laughs. But this movie, to me, is, and I don't like to use the word wholesome, but it's 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 good, wholesome fun, and it's absolutely hilarious. And it's, again, Chevy Chase playing a, a, an affable and likable character. So, Adam, I'm going to turn it over to you for your thoughts on 1988's Funny Farm. I'm glad that you chose this because it's been on my DVR for the past week and a half. And I haven't seen it probably since the early 90s. I know I saw it at the the Dollar Theater with my family uh, back in 88 or 89, um, around the time when it came out. And even then, I was I, I thought it was hysterical. I thought it was just like the funniest movie that I had seen until I saw like The Naked Gun. And then that became the funniest movie I'd ever seen. But yeah, I agree with you. This was kind of an interesting period where Chevy Chase was like never more likable on screen um, in that kind of mid to late 80s period around um, Fletch and Christmas Vacation and things like that. He really like taps into something that I enjoy in a lot of performances where it's, he's kind of like this put upon guy. He's got the best intentions, but just through like a comedy of manners or just through not really having like eyes wider than, you know, his grasp can be. Um, he makes a lot of mistakes. So you're always sort of laughing with him as opposed to laughing at him. Um, I remember the, characters surrounding him were really funny and just very specific it felt like whoever um i think the writer was jeffrey baum you'd have to check that though but he you're you're right adam it was okay yeah um but it's obvious that he 
he's basing some of this stuff off of experience. These don't feel like stock characters. They feel like real personalities that he couldn't wait to put into a movie. I will always remember the scene with the the testicles. I Was it goat testicles or something was, like that? It was the lamb fries. So. The lamb fries. <laughs> yeah. The lamb fries scene. And I remember being snuckered by that because when I was watching the movie as a kid, I was like, man, those look good. And then when I found out what they were, I was like Chevy Chase. And I felt disappointed in myself. <laughs> uh, I will say this before I turn it over to you, Mike, for your thoughts, that Madeline Smith Osborne, who plays his wife, is so good in this movie. And I'm sure the two of you will correct me, but but when I say, I wish I would have seen more of her down the road. She just seemed to be just so perfectly cast in this film, and then I didn't really see a lot of her after that. But there's a particular scene in the movie, and again, I'm trying to stay away from spoilers, where Andy has finished his book, and it's their anniversary night, and then they've decided to check into a little uh, romantic uh, hotel, and he just watches her read the entire manuscript. And the way she describes the issues she has with the book, I just tear up in laughter every time. So, Mike, I'll turn it over to you. Now, I turn this over to you very cautiously because I know that oftentimes comedy is not your forte. But please tell me that you've seen Funny Farm. I actually haven't. I have never seen Funny Farm. Uh, so I will be adding it to the list. Literally, my knowledge of Funny Farm consists of uh, Sarah Michelle Geller was deleted from the movie. That's the only reason I'm actually even familiar with this movie. She had scenes in it. They were deleted. Um, and so anytime you cut Buffy out of your movie, I, I'm already against you. But I will happily add it to the list, especially because I didn't realize, I'm glad Adam brought it up. I didn't realize Jeffrey Bohm was uh, the writer. Uh, he, you know, in addition to having a, a, an immaculate career, including Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, he always had a special place in my heart because he wrote the adventures or co-created the adventures of Briscoe County Jr., which is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. If you've never seen it, seek it out. Uh, it's Bruce Campbell at his finest and uh, unfortunately passed away fairly young, 53 uh, in the year 2000. So um, I will add it to the list and I'll actually bump it towards the top of the list. I, I got a lot of Chevy Chase catching up to do, I think, because for whatever reason, he was an actor that uh, during the 80s and 90s, I, I just didn't. I think a lot of it was because my parents didn't really think he was that funny. And, you know, I was 15 or 10 or however old I was in the 80s. And so it was like, you're kind of dependent on your parents to to determine what movies you watch. And they were always, they'd always rather watch horror or action movies. So uh, I think there's a lot of Chevy Chase movies I've got to do some catching up on. Outstanding. Well, please, I know we talk about doing a follow-up show, but please just shoot me a text after you watch Funny Farm because I, I, it's, it's a really charming film that I think, again, is from a bygone era that doesn't really exist anymore. And it's, I, I, it's got so much heart in it as well. So I'm really looking forward to, to hearing your thoughts on it. So Adam, I'm going to go to you for your second pick of the episode. So my second pick uh, is inspired in a way by one of your first picks from the original show. And that is another entry of the Jean-Claude Van Damme canon from his Universal Studios run in the mid-90s, which I think is like the time that he really kind of put it all together. And um, not all the movies are great. There was Street Fighter in there, and the quest is basically just like a Diet Coke version of Kickboxer and uh, Bloodsport. But he had Time Cop, Hard Targets, and then my favorite Van Damme movie, 
Sudden Death, which is uh, directed by his uh, semi-frequent collaborator, Peter Hyams, um, who also directed him in Time Cop. And then later in a movie, a really underseen little kind of direct-to-VOD movie called Enemies Closer with Van Damme playing the villain, which is which I recommend. It's a good one. But Sudden Death is it's definitely from the Die Hard model. It's, you know, one guy against a bunch of terrorists in a single location. But the thing that's different about Sudden Death is it's in a hockey stadium. It's in, like, the Pittsburgh Penguins home stadium. I think it was the Civic Arena. And whoever decided on that was really creative and really wanted to show off the stadium and have different set pieces in different areas. So you have Van Damme fighting uh, a mascot in the kitchen. And like, it's, it's great because you could kind of tell like there's improvisation in the fight choreography. It's like, Oh, well what's around this kitchen that we could fight with. And it's like, Oh, here's pepper. Let me throw some pepper into the, into the mascot's mouth where the eyeballs would be to burn this person's eyes and things like that. So it's just like little touches like that, that I love it seeing in action choreography, but not just the kitchen. I mean, like they're in the equipment rooms, they're on the ice, they're like running through the stands. They're on the roof of this retractable dome and people, People are falling off of retractable domes. It's just the greatest thing ever. So um, that's one thing that I love about it. I think it's one of Van Damme's stronger performances. Um, He's playing an archetype that a lot of action heroes of the time tapped into, especially Sylvester Stallone, which is the like disgraced hero pity me. I'm going to dial down my charisma thing. But I think that, when Van Damme does it, he taps into like another layer of acting that he doesn't always do. And I think he's a really sympathetic guy when he wants to be. And he's never more so than as this uh, de- father of two kids who uh, divorced father of two kids um, who's bringing them to this hockey game as a as a gesture of of uh you know just being a good dad to them because he doesn't see them all the time i think it's his son's birthday that he's bringing uh the kid to and he's a big hockey fan the bad guys in the movie are it very interesting um the henchmen are weird because it's almost like every single one of them is an actor who's never done a movie before like some of their line deliveries are just very off center but it makes them more interesting but the main bad guy in this movie is one of the best bad guys of the 1990s it's like the model of the hans gruber erudite um psycho and that's played by powers booth who is a treasure and i miss him and um he was great in movies like southern comfort and tombstone and rapid fire and he's given the opportunity to be the main heavy um in this one and he chooses scenery and it's great and it's a very fun performance the movie's interesting because it's one of those just go with it type of movies the van damme character makes no sense he's a he's a firefighter who had an accident and now is a fire inspector for special events at the hockey arena but he seems to know how to like disarm bombs for no reason unless they explained it in some kind of line of dialogue that i've missed every 50 times that i've watched this movie there's no reason why he should be able to do this but he is and then um he does things where his motivation is to get his daughter back. At one point in the movie, the daughter is taken into the 
owner's box where everybody's being held hostage. And, you know, if he, there's certain things where he, he, he has that motivation, but then like he'll abandon it because he wants to go after the bad guy to make sure that they never do this again. Where if you're thinking from, you know, your father point of view, it's like, well, wouldn't you want to just get your kids out of harm's way and get them into safety? But it's not always that way. Sudden Death is a, a movie I saw on winter break in 1995 when I was in junior high. I felt like I was getting away with murder because I got into this R-rated movie that I shouldn't have gotten into. <laughs> and it became fast one of my favorite action movies of all time. I'll say this real quick about uh, Sudden Death. It's not a movie that I think I, cont- I I continuously think about, but as soon as you bring it up, I just get sort of get these joyful thoughts in my head about how much fun I had watching that movie. And I remember seeing it in the theater. And if I remember correctly, and it's, Adam, it's probably been 10, 15 years since I've seen the movie. But if I remember correctly, it's game seven of the Stanley Cup Finals And the vice president is one of the guests. And that's kind of why Powers Booth and and, and company kind of take the place over. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And I think there's a a line of dialogue really early in the movie where the stepfather of Van Damme's kids um, is trying to he's a hockey fan, too. And he's trying to convince his wife to let Van Damme take the kids to the game. And one of the things that he says is he's just like, the vice president's going to be there. And I'm like, that's no rationale that anyone's ever used to like go to a sports game <laughs> where it's like, oh, yeah, it's game seven of the of the Stanley Cup finals. But, you know, Joe Biden's going to be there. So that'd be pretty sweet. <laughs> I just like, re- he might pay for something. <laughs> I, but I remember, I remember, look, listen, rational Dana at 40 years old looks back at a couple things in that, in that movie. One is, if I remember correctly, and I, I don't want to get too far into spoilers, but it's, it, there's kind of a throwaway line that Van Damme was a, an amateur hockey player in his earlier days before he, he was a firefighter. And at one point, I think he gets to fulfill a uh, lifelong dream. And I don't want to say more than that. One thing I will say that I need to tell you guys about because I'm very excited about it. Um, I I have a tendency when I watch some of these older movies that I really love to go on eBay and then look up entertainment memorabilia to see if there's anything like kind of kitschy and weird. I was able to purchase for $20 a uh, custom-made for the movie Jean-Claude Van Damme Sudden Death Hockey jersey. That's awesome. <laughs> Oh, man, that is so cool. I'm very excited, but I also definitely need to dry clean it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll say I'll say this one thing. Well, before I turn it over to Mike for his thoughts on sun death, I will say one more thing that I absolutely and this is a, a, a continuing theme on this show and has been on this podcast for for years now is that I, again, respect the, the hell out of the fact that this is a movie that is pure practical effects it's pure stunt work it's really pre-cgi i'm sure there's a little bit here and there but the 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 climactic finale which i will not go into any detail is pretty awesome and so i i listen that's a great pick and even though i've already seen the movie that you've got me amped up to want to watch it again tonight so great pick adam mike what are your thoughts on sudden death Oh, I have thoughts. Uh, this is this movie is this movie is a very very popular movie around the Scott household. Uh, first of all, my wife and I. I'm glad you mentioned that you're a big hockey fan, Dana, because my wife and I are huge hockey fans. It's really the only sport I pay attention to football tangentially because I'm in America and it's hard not to. But hockey's really the only sport that we we follow, we watch. 
And my wife happens to be a diehard Pittsburgh Penguins fan. So this movie's kind of perfect for us because she gets some Penguins love. I get my Van Damme love. I love that Adam recommended this. This is one of my favorite Van Damme movies. Uh, to answer your kind of one thing that you brought up, Adam, part of the reason they had so much access to the stadium is one of the big financial backers of the movie was then Penguins CEO Howard Baldwin. And he wanted to show off Civic Arena and he wanted to show he basically bankrupted this as PR for the Penguins. So it's really part Penguins propaganda and part you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme action movie. Uh, but this is is such a, of all the many diehard knockoffs that came out, this is far from the best one. I, I think we, we can all agree that the best one was Speed, but this is far from the best one, but I think it might be the most purely fun one. It is so enjoyable. It is so ridiculous. Uh, this isn't really a spoiler because if you just go on YouTube and watch the trailer, if y'all are on the fence about watching this movie, here's what you need to know. Uh, the trailer reveals this, so I don't feel bad that it's a spoiler. The Penguin's mascot is named Iceberg. It's a giant penguin. And Van Damme has to fight one of the terrorists while the terrorist is in full Iceberg mascot regalia. And if you've ever wanted to see Jean-Claude Van Damme kick a giant stuffed penguin mascot, <laughs> this is the movie for you. And, and, and honestly, if you haven't wanted to see that, what is wrong with you? You Everybody should want to see that. That should be in every movie that's ever made, ever. Uh, so <laughs> this thing is so much fun. It's so entertaining. Peter Hyams has always been a, a good workmanlike uh, director. Uh, he's made some very, very bad movies, uh, but he's also made some some very enjoyable ones. Uh, he does his own cinematography, which can be both a benefit and a weakness. But in this case, I think he shoots the movie well. It's clean. You know, the fact that they had an actual hockey game it wasn't an nhl game because there was a, a work stoppage at the time they were filming but they did bring in uh some minor league teams dress them up and so there's guys actually playing hockey on the ice while they're filming all this stuff so there's a sense of good sense of authenticity there and i also second what uh what adam said about powers booth he is just a, a, a fantastic villain in this uh he's he's charming and creepy in equal measure. He's exactly what you want from one of these 90s, uh, you know, diehard sort of villains. He's he's really perfect, as, as Powers Booth often is in most movies. Yet again, uh, an actor that I think, you know, a common theme on this show is, is highlighting people who just never got enough credit when they were working, and I think Powers Booth is definitely one of them. Uh, there are also, for Penguins fans, Mario Lemieux has a cameo, Luke Robitaille has a cameo, Steige, Paul Steigerwald, who is the, the old Penguin commentator uh he uh, does voiceover for it and he's famous for saying things like well scratch my back with a hacksaw which makes it into the movie so i mean there's just so much fun in this movie one last thing i wanted to say i tweeted this out earlier this week because uh, van damme has a new movie that just opened this week and for those uh, dana when we talked about hard target you asked if there were any newer van damme movies that he did and, and matt zoller cites tweeted this and I retweeted it. This is a perfect, I just need to share this, perfect description of what Van Damme's become and why I love him so much. Uh, Matt says, I love Jean-Claude Van Damme's second act as a craggy-faced European character actor who looks like he can't decide whether to kill you or take a nap. And it's just such a perfect description of how Van Damme is acting now. He's just got so much character in what he does. And this is, is when he's starting to develop some of those quirkier characters because his character in this isn't 
he's not Chance Boudreaux from Hard Target. Um, he's not an unstoppable machine. He's really trying to tie into that Bruce Willis regular guy, and he's starting to get the sad Van Damme eyes in it and stuff like that. It's it's so much fun. I'm so glad that you recommended this, Adam. Wanted to to add it. Speed is the best Die Hard clone. However. There's maybe 30 good diehard knockoffs. Like that formula has been so terrific for action cinema that I mean, I, you could, I mean, Under Siege, Passenger 57, The Last Boy Scout's basically a diehard sequel, Speed, Sun Death. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. You could have like a whole marathon and just come away completely elated watching any of those. Um, and then also, I just want to give all of us a pat on the back because we're like 30 movies in and two of them that we're recommending as the must-sees of the entire century, the entire history of cinema are Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I, I, I've got to say that probably won't be the last Van Damme film talked about on this series. All right. So, Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you for your second pick of the episode. So... I'm actually noticing a pattern in this episode, and I think it's completely unintentional because I know in my picks, I didn't really look at the years when I picked them. But I know Adam and Patrick are doing a series on F This Movie uh, about 1999, uh, which if you all haven't listened to the first episode of that, please do so. It's one of my favorite episodes of any podcast ever. But maybe we need to do one, Dana, about 1995, because I am about to recommend the third movie from 1995 on this episode alone. So maybe 95 is a better year than we're all giving it credit for, uh, because the next movie I'm going to recommend is I'm going back to the Simpson Bruckheimer well uh, with what I think is arguably the best movie that they ever produced, although I think Beverly Hills Cop beats it by a hair. Um and that is uh, 1995's Crimson Tide. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, Crimson Tide is a, a submarine movie with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman, wherein uh, they are uh, Hackman's the captain. Denzel Washington is the, the first executive officer, the XO, and uh, they get a notification that a civil war is broken out in Russia and Due to a, a circumstance that I won't get into, the radio antenna gets damaged and they don't get the confirmation as to whether they're supposed to launch nuclear weapons at Russia. And it ends up becoming a very high tension uh, mutiny movie, essentially. It's really got its DNA in the Kane mutiny and uh, some other movies like that. And uh, if you want to watch two heavy hitters of cinema, two titans, to be honest with you, just go at one another for two hours while ably supported by people like James Gandolfini and Viggo Mortensen and uh, and everybody's favorite, Danny Nucci, uh, <laughs> then this is a movie that you really need to see. This thing is as tense and exciting as I honestly think any movie uh, that's ever been made. I'm not saying it's the best movie that's ever been made, but just for pure tension, for two hours, it, it is up there. Uh, I love this thing. So before I mention my absolute admiration for Crimson Tide, I want to tell you that there was just a fleeting moment there for a second there, Mike, where I was very scared that you were about to call 1995's Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer produced Bad Boys as their best film of all time. 
because because they both came out the same year and i was getting a little bit nervous i was like he's he's, he's gonna do it he's gonna he's gonna say bad boys and then i for some reason i had it registered in my head that crimson tide came out in 96 so not that i not that i think bad boys is a, is a bad movie it's probably gonna make the list someday or maybe not but i just was worried that you were calling it the best simpson brockheimer film so Thoughts on that? No, film? Bad Boys definitely has. Bad Boys is a movie that I love, but I would definitely have qualifications when recommending it, unlike Crimson Tide, which I recommend unreservedly. There's a, not a whole lot I need to say, except Crimson Tide is fucking amazing. And I, I, I'm not really going to get into too much analysis because it's just a damn near perfect film. And I remember seeing it in the theater. There's been very few times that I have been literally white knuckled holding on to the armrest i mean it is like you said just to, to echo what you said it is one of the tensest films i've ever seen and it's so the the pace of the film is so relenting and so intense and that, i mean credit to the director tony scott i mean the guy is just a, a master at what he does and i will go out on a limb and say that i think this is the best tony scott film that he has ever made would you gentlemen agree with me or disagree? I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, I'll let Adam answer that first. Uh, I think it's maybe his second or tied for first with True Romance. It's pretty tough to beat that one. I only um, left True Romance out of that because of the Tarantino connection. Sure. Well, Tarantino did like a, a polish on the script for Crimson Tide. Did you know that? I did not know that. See, I stand Yeah, so a lot of the stuff like the Silver Surfer dialogue like that's that is um tarantino and one of an interesting bit of trivia about tarantino and his involvement in crimson tide is he apparently was taken aside at one point by denzel washington because denzel washington did not approve of tarantino's use of the n-word in past scripts and i think that he had some in the crimson tide script and apparently tarantino was like let's go somewhere and discuss this and then washington decided to dress him down in front of the entire cast and crew and then later on they made amends and denzel washington's daughter is like a production assistant for quentin tarantino and worked on like django unchained so it's a very interesting little backstory there what do you think of crimson tide it's wonderful. It's um, my favorite submarine movie. Uh, I love it. It's funny that you picked it, Mike, because it was one of my original picks for this episode, but I didn't do it only because um, I saw that Dana retweeted a podcast called Shat the Movies, did a show on Crimson Tide recently, and I was just like, oh, well, there's a chance that he might pick it then. Because it's like in the in the ether, so like I decided to choose something else. Uh, but I, I I love the movie. I think it's a pinnacle of movie arguing. Like if you want to see just fantastic arguing on screen, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman are so good at that. Um, and the thing I love about the movie the most is it forces you to pick sides. And also, you're changing your position throughout the movie with the characters based on the development. So ordinarily, I'm siding with Denzel Washington over Gene Hackman. 
And then I side with him because I agree with his point. But then I don't agree with his methods, and I'm tending to side more with Gene Hackman's uh, position. So it's that constant evolution of like how you feel about the whole thing. And it's just an exhilarating, uh, visceral, and intellectual experience as a movie. And I agree, it's, it's probably the, if you put in quotes like best, Tony Scott, Jerry Bruckheimer, Don Simpson movie, um, just in sheer quality, objectively, I think it, it it's their height. So I just want to add a couple of things. One, I agree as far as Tony Scott's best movie. True Romance is kind of an almost different animal. It, it, but I think in terms of like what Adam said, just pure professional mainstream Hollywood blockbuster quality. Uh, Tony Scott was never better than this movie. And I just wanted to throw in a couple of additional trivia things. Adam mentioned the uh, Quentin Tarantino thing. So initially when this movie was getting made, they had cooperation from the Navy. The Navy let them come aboard a submarine. Uh, They were allowed to view a bunch of video and and see demonstrations of how the submarine operates. So that's why there is a, a fairly decent level of authenticity in the movie. But then when the Navy got the final script, they were like, no way, no how, hell no, we're not cooperating (laughs) with you at all. So they had to go to France and they used French submarines. But one of the things that they couldn't do is they couldn't, they didn't have footage of the submarine submerging. And this isn't really a spoiler because it happens fairly early in the movie. There's a big scene where we get Hans Zimmer music and, and the Alabama submerges. And so what Tony Scott actually did was he got a tip that the Alabama was setting out to sea from Pearl Harbor and it was going to, you know, go out and eventually submerge. So he and a camera crew got in a helicopter and just followed the damn thing, shooting footage until it finally submerged. And that is the footage of it submerging in the movie. I mean, it's it's guerrilla filmmaking in a hundred million dollar movie. It's insane to me. It's so awesome. It's just such a perfect example of the kind of reckless awesomeness that Tony Scott had when he was making movies and the way he was just always willing to do whatever he could to get the best shot, to get the best scene. It didn't always work, uh, but, you know, He's a director that I think, you know, for those who don't know, he unfortunately killed himself a, a few, committed suicide a few years ago. And I think he's a director that, that we're sorely missing, um, you know, just a little pour a little out for Tony. Uh, that's all I've got. OK. OK. That's a really interesting trivia. I'm not going to watch that scene ever again. The same. The same. I'm not going to be able to watch that scene the same ever again. So you can purchase a men's windbreaker of Crimson Tide for $44 and a leather jacket for $74. <laughs> okay. All right. So, <laughs> so okay. So for, for my second pick, I wanted to look at an icon, uh, iconic actor that I've always been a big, big fan of. And when you have a career that spans more than 40 years, you're going to go through some ups and downs in your career. You're going to have some slumps. Along the way, it, it happens to to every actor. This particular actor I'm talking about is one Sylvester Stallone. For those that are Patreon supporters, you'll know the very first bonus episode that I did was on the original Rocky, and I talked about sort of Stallone's rags to riches story of how he he wrote the script for Rocky, had many offers to sell it, but would not sell it unless he could star in the movie. And to make a long story short, Rocky ended up winning Best Picture. So Stallone was off and running. He, he did a, a number of Rocky sequels. He did uh, some Rambo movies. He had a couple misses here or there in the mid-80s. Cobra, 
over the top. And then he just kind of hit a, a real slump. Films like Lockup, Rocky Five, Oscar, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. These are movies that are really not talked about. And they're not even really recognized as being part of his legacy filmography. But he had a huge bounce back year in 1993 with two films. One of them was Demolition Man. And the other one, I really feel is apropos and sort of meets the criteria of a couple of the films we've discussed this in this episode, or at least one of them. And that is sort of the diehard formula. I'm, of course, talking about 1993's Rennie Harlan-directed film Cliffhanger. Now, the basic plot of the film is is simply Sylvester Stallone. Again, very much like we talked about with the Van Damme character, sort of he's a disgraced mountain rescuer who uh, has an unfortunate incident at the beginning of the film, which is unbelievably tense to watch and incredibly scary. Uh, he is called into action after a hijacked plane carrying $100 million uh, from the U.S. Treasury Department crashes into the Rockies. Now, not going to get too much into the plot there, except to say that if there was ever a pattern with these diehard clones, is that they would bring in the best people to play the heavy, the best people to play the bad guys. From, you know, Tommy Lee Jones in Under Siege, Powers Booth in Sudden Death, Dennis Hopper in Speed. I mean, the list goes on. And in this particular film, John Lithgow plays the bad guy. And he is terrifying. Not since Ricochet was I more terrified of John Lithgow. So I'm going to turn it over to you first, Adam. Can you give me your thoughts on 1993's Cliffhanger as a movie and, and where you thought Stallone's career was at that point? And did you see 93 as a bounce back year for him? Uh, Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, It, it kind of goes in part with um the Van Damme performance and Sudden Death. It's, it's almost like they feel like Stallone more more specifically it's like oscar stopper my mom will shoot rocky five lockup it's like he felt like he needed to do a tone and he couldn't like go out in full force he needed to like halfway apologize during a movie so that's what cliffhanger is he's like this kind of disgraced hero um and it's on a, it works on like a meta textual level it's really interesting but yeah 93 was a great year for him because cliffhanger was the first movie of his that delivered the goods um, in a in a while, and also uh, Demolition Man was a really kind of ahead of its time sci-fi comedy as well as an action movie. So it was a it was a strong year for him, and it relaunched his brand. He did a lot of like Warner Brothers films after that with the Specialists and Assassins and things of that sort. I, I agree with you with Lithgow. Um, he's definitely having fun he's chewing up the scenery there's a fun sort of assortment of supporting characters who play as henchmen like one of them is leon from cool runnings and above the rim and it's just nice to see him pop up and things um and then like you said that opening sequence is one of the scariest most white knuckle action scenes that you could ever put into a movie it almost makes it almost sets uh, it's like a Bond movie where the opening scene is so strong that the rest of the movie sort of is buckling under the weight of that opening sequence. It's just like, how do you top that? Um, one thing I will say, though, that I have a little bit of a gripe about Cliffhanger is do you remember the trailer to Cliffhanger? It is so fantastic. It's one of the best trailers I've ever seen in my life. 
but it's capped with a scene where Stallone repels from like, he basically does the bus jump from speed off of like one cliff to another. And it's, it was on the poster. It was like the coda of the preview, but it's not in the movie. And I'm sad that it's not in the movie, and but I've, it's a very good pick. I've always, I've always wondered if that was, if there was ever, and, and, and listeners can correct me if there's ever a director's cut or, or some behind the scene footage, because you're right. That is definitely not in the film. Mike, what are your thoughts on cliffhanger? I like cliffhanger. Uh, first Adam, if you want to get the fix for jumping from one cliff to another, you just need to go forward a couple of years and watch vertical limit. It's Chris O'Donnell doing it, but it's basically the exact same shot. So uh, it's definitely the high point. What was that? Sorry. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I just couldn't help myself because vertical limit is so bad. (laughs) It's it's not great. But that shot, you know, that is the movie that understood you do your money shot in the actual movie. Um, No, I like I like Cliffhanger a lot. I think the only thing that that kind of keeps Cliffhanger down for me, and this is definitely going to be a stay tuned, is I like Demolition Man uh, exponentially more. Demolition Man just really uh, hits the like, you know, base part of my brain in a way that Cliffhanger doesn't. But Cliffhanger was back when Rennie Harlan was really still making solid action movies uh, and doing them well and doing them in a way that that a lot of other people weren't. You know, as we always talk about, Dana, high focus on practical stunts and practical special effects. I mean, there's no question they're on the side of a mountain for most of this movie. The other thing that I always think is interesting about Cliffhanger and, and Adam kind of brought it up is has there ever been a major star who has burned down his career and then risen like a phoenix from the ashes more times than Sylvester Stallone has. I mean, it's almost like he's allergic to sustained success because he he gets some success and then he just makes, we'll, we'll generously call them bold choices. And then, you know, falls all the way down and then comes back with, you know, Cliffhanger or later comes back with Rocky Balboa and the fourth Rambo movie and just keeps burning down and rising up it's it's a he's got one of the most i think fascinating careers of any major hollywood star that that i can think of yeah and it's interesting because after 93 like you said mike you know he again there there's a number of films in that period after 93 that are just like what and 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 so even when he returned to working with Rennie Harlan in Driven, which is just the absolute worst representation of IndyCar racing that I've ever seen in any film ever made, it was it wasn't until about 2006 with Rocky Rocky Balboa that he bounced back. So that's a really good point you bring up, Mike. Adam, any th- closing thoughts on uh, on Cliffhanger? Uh, no, I mean I I have a ton of nostalgia for it just because I saw it in theaters opening weekend and I grew up on watching you know rentals from blockbuster and cable watches of it um i'm i'm happy that you brought up rennie harlan because i think that with time past um it's easy to forget that he was a really solid action director for the better part of a decade and i would also recommend the long kiss goodnight which i think is a lot of fun and features like a terrific gina davis performance and i think die hard 2 is pretty underrated amongst action fans as well um i would love to see him come back with something uh worthy of his of his talents but it seems as if you know he's i don't know what he's doing he pops up every now and then but it's always for like a movie that you don't think he's worthy of, or you just have no idea why he's attached to it. But yeah, Cliffhanger is a, a, a great pick. 
All right, Adam, we're going to go to your third and final pick of the episode. What do you got? Um, so my last pick is um, from 1986, and I chose it specifically because the site that I write for and I am on the podcast on um, is F This Movie. And this Saturday, March 9th, uh, we have F This Movie Fest, which is an annual event where um, we pick a number of entries in this this year we pick six movies from a single year um so 1986 for for this year and what we do is we all watch them together and tweet about them together and it's a great event where we can interact with our fans and followers throughout the year all in one single event it's kind of our super bowl day so um the event kicks off at 10 a.m central standard time with labyrinth followed by big trouble in little china toby hooper's remake of invaders from mars ferris bueller's day off cobra for you stallone fans and we cap off with aliens uh directed by james cameron so it should be a really fun event if you'd like more details please visit the website fthismovie.com um it's the letter f this movie click on the tab at the top that says f this movie fest 2019 and you'll get all the details that you need um so that segues into my pick for for today's show um, I've been rewatching a bunch of movies from 1986 and my favorite movie from the year. And I think the best movie from that year is my pick for today. And that's Oliver Stone's best picture winner platoon. It won four Oscars, best picture, best director for stone, best sound and best film editing. And I think that it's one of those cases where it's undeniable the power of the movie. It's the type of movie where you watch it and you get completely why it's a classic. I didn't see Platoon until probably sometime in my teens, but I remember it just laying me out the first time I saw it. It's a very emotionally draining experience, um, but it's a movie that I've rewatched a lot considering that it's such a, a heavy picture to watch. So I, when I went into it this, this weekend trying to kind of figure out what it is that makes it tick for me, I was really struck by how strong some of the subtle choices that Stone is making in this movie are. Um, things like Charlie Sheen's voiceover. It's always difficult to sort of justify a voiceover in a movie. It sometimes seems like you're taking a narrative shortcut, but in this case, he's using it through the device of these are letters of his to his grandmother back home. So it's nice that you're sort of using it for a specific purpose. And I like that he's the Charlie Sheen character is a volunteer. He was a rich kid who volunteered for the Vietnam War because in his words, he felt bad that poor kids were being sent off and drafted to fight in the war while rich kids for the most part were protected or in college and had like ways of kind of avoiding the draft or having a higher draft number um, than some of the people in the poorer areas. But I like that he's writing it to his grandmother. And that's not something that I noticed before, because that's probably because his parents are mad at him and they don't want to talk to him about it. They're upset with him about his choice. So he's always sort of talking to them indirectly through his grandmother. Say hi to mom and dad for me or just tell them Chris says I love you, things like that. I also like that the movie just sort of throws you into being part of Chris's tour of duty. And that is to a purpose. They they don't, uh, a lot of the guys who have been 
in country for a longer period of time don't tell him how to do anything. So he's learning things by making mistakes. And in this environment, making a mistake can cost you your life at any given moment. So there's always that tension there. And then also he's thrown into a platoon that is completely in a breakdown of chain of command. Um, there's a lieutenant played by Mark Moses, who was a, a tele- mostly a television actor in later years, um, who is just a completely inept leader, lets his sergeants, played by Tom Berenger in an absolutely chilling performance, um, and Willem Dafoe just sort of run their commands uh, kind of splintered from one another. So there's no one moral authority. It's just there's a sect of kind of extremists run by Berenger and then a, a sect of pacifists run by Defoe. And the movie has really no wasted moments that best editing Oscars were really well-deserved. It feels um, it's, it's lean. It's a two hour movie. It could have very easily been like a two and a half hour picture, but instead it's, it's uh, it goes in and does what it needs to. And I think does the best thing that a film can do is art, which is it's made by stone based off of his firsthand experience from the Vietnam war. And it feels like a movie that he had to pour out of himself onto a screen that he couldn't keep it inside of him anymore. And obviously this is a subject that stone has gone back to a number of times. Um, he has a Vietnam trilogy of sorts uh, with born on the 4th of July, which is also terrific and heaven on earth, which I sadly have not seen, but I, I, I really want to platoon is just a case of, he was the right guy to tell this story at the right time. The movie has a, an amazingly deep cast uh, with Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, Charlie Sheen, Forrest Whitaker, Johnny Depp, Keith David, Tony Todd, Kevin Dillon, John C. McGinley, and more, almost all recognizable faces. And it's, I think, just an absolutely stunning movie that isn't necessarily talked about as much I think there's a weird nowadays. I think there's a weird thing where when a movie wins best picture, people kind of avoid it a little bit um, and or kind of put it aside or it's not quote unquote cool anymore. And then when you go back and watch some of these movies, you sort of understand, you know, why they really kind of hit the zeitgeist at the time and became all time classics. And I think Platoon is one of those cases where the Academy got it right that year. Well, I just want to say one thing. First, about what you said about, you know, when a movie wins Best Picture, it's I've always often looked at it as when a movie wins Best Picture, it's the same as when a jersey number is retired in baseball. It's it's had its run. It's Hall of Fame. And then it's now retired. That's just how I've always kind of looked at a lot of these Best Picture films, because a lot of cases. Even I don't go back and revisit them because it's almost sort of like on a, on a subconscious level. It's like, well, it's the best. Why do I need to re- keep rewatching it? Now, having said that, Platoon for me holds a special place for one really eye-opening reason. And that was the film was released in 1986. And remember, this is a, back in a time when, you know, a theatrical movies would have a much longer theatrical run. If they were popular and then it would be anywhere from six months to a year before it would have a home video release. And so I want to flash forward two more years to 1988. That would have been when I saw the movie for the first time to understand that period. That's 10 year old me who is a action movie 
junkie, like I'm sure both of you were at that age. It's Commando, it's Predator, it's Rambo, it's it's Robocop, it's it's you know, it's all these, you know, glorified violent movies. And then I watched Platoon at at an age that I was probably too young to to see it. I mean I was, let's be let's be honest. And I can tell you this, this was the very first movie that made me open my eyes and 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 realize you know, I thought I was going to be watching an action movie because I didn't know any better. I was 10 years old and it so profoundly affected me at the age of 10 that I didn't even finish the film the first time I saw it. And I don't think I went back and rewatched it for another five or six years because I was so uncomfortable with what I was seeing on screen because I, at 10 years old, I couldn't process it. But it is a movie that really profoundly changed the way that I looked at war as certainly how it was presented on screen. Now, keep this in mind. I had not seen Apocalypse Now. I had not seen The Deer Hunter. I I was from Canada. I didn't have a handle on what the Vietnam War was. So I just remember that film and I credit it for really sort of changing the narrative for me as far as, you know, how serious war and combat was. Uh, I couldn't think of a better pick, Adam. it's, It's a tremendous film. It's one that I probably revisit probably once every three to four years. And it is a put the phone away. You have my full attention for the entire two hours. So excellent pick. Mike, your thoughts on Platoon? Sure. Uh, Before I get into Platoon really quick, I do just want to second what Adam said about F This Movie Fest. If you're a listener of this show and you don't follow F This Movie, please, please, please just participate in F This Movie Fest. I, I did my first one last year and I actually made more friends on Twitter and on the internet than I've made in my entire life and people that I still interact with regularly. It is such a wonderful way to spend a Saturday afternoon. I'll be doing it again this year. So if you follow this show, you can follow, you know, just follow it along with me. And uh, and it's really about the best fun that you're ever going to have on the hell site that we call Twitter. I, I really can't <laughs> recommend participating enough. That being said, I understand why you guys aren't ending F this movie fest with Platoon. Uh, I love Platoon. <laughs> I think it's I saw it in 1986 because my parents had, shall we say, some very flexible rules about what kinds of movies I could see. And so I saw this when I was 10 and uh, it just absolutely wrecked me but also like you said dana it really kind of changed the game uh for years for three or four years after that almost any time i had to do a report in school it was about the vietnam war it was you know and as i got older i was able to more appreciate the interesting shall we say conflicting nature of that war um but i don't revisit platoon as much as i should simply because it does wreck me. I, I pretty much only have it's. It's not unlike, uh, say, like Requiem for a Dream for me, where I've only seen Requiem for a Dream, I, I think, twice in my life. And I could still probably recite every scene in that movie from memory. It just burned itself into my brain. Platoon's kind of the same way. It wrecks me every time I see it, uh, which is not to say it's this overwhelmingly depressing movie. It, it's it's serious, but there's certainly moments of, of levity and and, you know, it doesn't just end with you feeling under the crushing weight of the world but it just emotionally so affects me that i only watch it about once a decade i kind of have to mentally gear up for it i don't want to say that to dissuade anybody from watching it if they haven't seen it this was a well-deserved best picture winner it is well deserved to be considered one of the best movies of all time i actually think that in a career that is filled with a lot of really great movies and a lot of movies that are misses, 
I actually think this is Oliver Stone's best movie. I think from start to finish, it's his most cohesive. I know a lot of people will say JFK, but I think JFK is so much of it's a great movie but it's so much of the things that i think maybe kind of put people off on oliver stone this one is coming from such a place of personal experience and heart and emotion that i I just think from start to finish it's his most solid piece of work it's an absolutely stunning movie um and actually an interesting story for those who listened to the last episode i recommended the wraith which had charlie sheen um i heard a good story from the director where he was talking about how on the set of the wraith charlie sheen was acting kind of like the charlie sheen that we are familiar with and mike marvin the director basically told him you know you're going out for this war movie you need to get your shit together because this is the type of movie that's a game changer for you and regardless of how you feel about charlie sheen as an actor this movie was a game changer for him he is so good in this movie he he's the perfect audience surrogate to take you into this nightmarish world um and and he gets i think i'll buy in a lot of people's estimations he gets overshadowed by willem dafoe and tom berenger and that's understandable they're so excellent in it and they but they certainly have flashier roles but their roles don't work if they're not tying charlie sheen together and you know kind of dealing with without getting into spoilers being the angel and the devil on his shoulder and tying kind of trying to tear his soul in two as he's dealing with you know being in this war it it's just such a, a good movie. I can't I don't have anything else to add other than if you haven't seen it, please, please, please make this one a top priority. I agree with with everything you mentioned there. Um, the whole thing with kind of um, the Defoe character and the Barringer character kind of fighting over Charlie Sheen's soul. It's it's interesting because it works in a way where his actions are basically his his like default mode in panic is to go full Behringer. And it's like what he absolutely does not want of himself. He wants to be the Defoe type. So I, I think that's a really interesting kind of under the surface element of the movie. I know that this was one of those movies where it became kind of in fashion for if it's a war movie um, to hire Dale Dye as a special assistant. He was a Marine who's featured in Platoon, but he was a Marine consultant who fought in the Vietnam War, um, who's been a part of just about any type of war movies since then. Um, And he put the cast through like a 30-day boot camp where he kind of sleep-deprived them and he was setting off special effect explosions and things like that to disarm them. And by the time they shot, it was immediately after that training. So they didn't go home to decompress. And you can kind of feel that in their performances. And I think it works to the movie's benefit. These guys are sick of being around each other and they're exhausted. I think it really helps with the movie. And then one last thing I'll say is um, I think it's so funny that three years later, Tom Berenger and major and uh, Charlie Sheen starred together in major league because it's almost like it was therapy for them. (laughs) Like they needed to be together under more positive terms. That's awesome. All right, uh, Mike, I'm going to go to you for your final pick of the episode. So one of the things that I always have to kind of check myself on this show is the circles I run in. There's some movies that I feel like are just so universally accepted as classics that I don't kind of don't want to recommend them because we want to highlight movies that people maybe aren't watching as much. But then I sometimes get 
responses on Twitter and realized that that some of these movies that I think are no-brainers, people haven't seen. And so this is one that I, it wasn't even initially going to be on my list of movies to recommend at any point, because I feel like it's just such a given. But if you're not a horror fan, and our list is sorely lacking in horror at this point, so I'm going to rectify that now, this might not be a movie you've ever seen. So the first one I'm going to recommend is Stuart Gordon's 1985 opus, Reanimator. For those who haven't seen it, Reanimator is is, uh, loosely based on uh, H.P. Lovecraft's Herbert West Reanimator, and I say very loosely. Uh, It's far from a direct adaptation. It mostly just took inspiration and some character names, but it is about a, a essentially a mad scientist named Herbert West, who uh, has created this serum that will allow him to reanimate dead matter. And he uh, rooms with another medical student named Dan, played by Bruce Abbott, and they sort of go on this journey to try and perfect this uh, serum that can reanimate dead matter. And it ends up, as you can imagine, going all to shit in no time. And so um, it is an ooey, gooey, bloody mess that is also at times hilarious uh at times truly shocking and scary uh and it's all basically carried on the shoulders of two very important performers which is jeffrey combs playing herbert west and barbara crampton uh as as the the sort of the female lead and and dan's girlfriend who gets drawn into this uh her character's name is megan uh and if you've never seen barbara crampton in a movie she is one of horror's uh absolute gems we are lucky to have her and she's recently started working again in movies and so by all means seek her out but this movie is so much fun this is the epitome of get your friends together order some pizza get some beers get entirely too much whiskey and if you're in a state that allows it you know maybe some other types of recreational (laughs) uh substances and just kick back and watch this thing because it is so much fun there are few horror movies i think that have ever been made that are as just much fun to watch as this one is um so what do you guys think of this one well i'll just i'm gonna uh, here's one i haven't seen before but i am beyond familiar with and it's just one of those ones that fell through the cracks. So I'm going to add it to the list and I'll just quickly yield my time over to Adam because uh, it, it's one that I, I, I just really need to watch. So, Adam? Yeah, it's a great pick. Um, I love the horror genre. Um, I am a big Stuart, Stuart Gordon fan, too. I think Reanimator is is fantastic. Like if you're a fan of horror comedy you can't really do any better than this one. It's, it's really great. Um, it's definitely a movie that was made on an independent level. So they got away with a lot and, um, it introduced you to icons of the genre, like Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton and Bruce Abbott, who all went on to do a lot of great work throughout the eighties and nineties and two thousands. Crampton in particular is kind of going through like a renaissance period right now where a lot of the people who grew up on movies like Reanimator are now directors and they're casting her in a lot of their genre fare. It's really just fun. It's a very quick, like 85, 90 minute just blast of energy. So I I highly recommend it. And then the, the great thing, the thing that warms my hard as a genre fan is that this company sort of stayed together like a theater troupe. And Stuart Gordon came from a theater background in Chicago uh, before he became a feature di- a feature film director. And they did uh, From Beyond, which is fantastic. They did 
Castle Freak, which is also very good together. And it's nice that you see these people just continually collaborating with one another. But in terms of an entry point into the filmography of Stuart Gordon and just a prime piece of 80s horror cinema, Reanimator is definitely the way to go. I do just want to add, I, I do want people to know what they're getting into. And here's a perfect little bit of trivia. The uh, special effects supervisor basically said that in every movie he'd ever done up to this point, he'd only ever used two gallons, at most two gallons of blood in a movie. And they used, I think, 24 gallons of blood <laughs> in this movie. So I do want people to know what they're getting into. This is not a, um, you know, this is not a movie that relies on tension or uh, on the unknown is scarier than the known. This is a full out bloody, gory, hilarious, entertaining uh, horror movie. So if you're on that vibe, if you like things like Evil Dead, um, this is a movie, if you haven't seen it, that's going to be right up your alley. I'm a little trepidatious to watch it because I don't do the gore very well, but... But I will try my best to get through it. I, but I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll watch, I watch, I will watch everything that is recommended on this show. So I might have to take breaks when I watch this one, though, just based on if what you just said. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, Dana, it is funny gore. I mean, that sounds like a weird thing, but it, the movie's not trying to disturb you. It's not trying to upset you. It's it's a it's a it's a splatter comedy. The gore is based on you know how far can we take this to the point where you go from being grossed out to just laughing your ass off. Um, and so it, it goes, it pushes through that kind of ookie. Cause my wife doesn't really do gore very well either. And she loves this movie. Okay. So it, that, that gives you kind of a good indication. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So for the final pick of the episode, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to start this series and, and I feel like we're now five episodes in and we're, we're really accomplishing the objective that I set out was to introduce films to a younger generation that, that they haven't seen. And, and I really want this platform to showcase some, what I think are some great films that haven't been seen before, not by the younger generation and maybe not even by our generation. I want to talk about 1989's Miracle Mile. Now, this film stars Anthony Edwards and Mira Winningham. It's directed by Steve Jarnett, and I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. The, the basic premise of this film is that Anthony Edwards' character, Harry, is a, mus a musician in Los Angeles, and he meets his dream woman. He says, after 30 years, I've, I've met the woman of my dreams. They spend the day together at a museum and, and sort of just enjoy each other's company. They make plans to meet later on in the evening. Harry oversleeps. His alarm doesn't go off. He ends up missing the, the late night date that they've got set up. Well, he is at the diner where he, he's supposed to meet uh, Mara Winningham. Her, her character's name is Julie, where he's supposed to meet Julie. He just happens to answer a ringing payphone. Now, on the other end of that phone is somebody frantically telling Harry that something really bad is going to happen, and I'm purposely being vague here. And the rest of the movie basically plays out almost in real time as Harry has to decide and has to figure out whether or not what he heard is really going to happen. And along the way, he's got to find Julie and all hell breaks loose. And this movie is, I don't want to say that it's a slow burn because it just keeps topping itself with 
set piece after set piece as far as what is going to happen. And you as the viewer are left wondering whether or not the, the message that Harry received was real or not. But by the time we get towards the climax of the film, the rumors have sort of spread throughout the city of Los Angeles about what possibly might be happening and all chaos is breaking loose. It's just a really interesting film that I think gets, like I said, gets bigger and more audacious. And I'm wondering if you gentlemen have seen Miracle Mile. Adam? No, I haven't. Um, I've heard about it uh, uh, in recent years, and I'm I'm eager to watch it now after your recommendation, but I, I, I know very little about it. Mike? I have to admit, so this is one that has been on the list for a couple of years. Uh, a lot of people whose opinions I really value that I you know follow on Twitter and interact with on Twitter seem to really, really love this movie. And it's been on my list. It's been on my letterboxed watch list for a couple of years. And it's just one of those movies. Like you kind of said, Dana, about Reanimator, it's just sort of fallen through the cracks. But I'm going to be honest, of all the movies that that have been recommended on this show that I haven't seen, I'm actually going to put this one at the top of the list because I've wanted to see this one and I just haven't gotten around to it. So this gives me the motivation to actually watch it. So uh, I think it's fair to say that when we do a catch up episode on the movies that, that we've caught up on, this is going to be one of the ones that I'll be talking about. Well, then I'm really glad that I've been purposely cryptic about the plot of the film, since both of you haven't seen the movie. Uh, I will say this, it really does play out. I, I like movies that play out sort of in real time. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a few minor time jumps here, but it's essentially from the moment he receives the phone call, it basically, the rest of the film basically plays out in real time. And it's, it's 90 minutes long. Now, fun, fun little fact about Miracle Mile. I've been a, a fan of this movie for, for many, many years. And I just, on a whim, sent the director a friend request on Facebook a couple years ago, which he accepted. And I actually reached out to him yesterday. And I basically said that I'm going to be recommending Miracle Mile. And I have two questions. And I said, first one is, is there a fun fact or two that you could share with me about the film that I could pass along to my co-hosts and to my listeners? And then two, I said, would you ever consider being a guest on the podcast sometime down the road so we could discuss the film in more detail? I told him I'd be very interested in hearing the whole behind the scenes story about how the movie got made. Wasn't sure if he was going to respond or not, and he got right back to me. He said, sure, on both one and two. I won't read the whole message, but he's, he's got a lot going on planned for the 30th anniversary of Miracle Mile, and he said he'll, he'll be happy to do the podcast. He said he's a little swamped right now, but we're going to set that up for April. And then he said, as far as a fun fact, he said he's, he shared this a couple times, but he said, my leads, Anthony Edwards and Mara Whittingham, are now a couple in real life. And he just wanted to point that out. And I told him that was great. And so I look forward to talking with him in much more detail about Miracle Mile. I'm hoping that both of you will have seen it by then. So looking forward to that one. I just rented it on Amazon, so I will get back to you soon. Okay, excellent. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to him about it. Like that, to me, I, I that's one of the things that I think is just awesome that, you know, through this platform, we're able to reach out to the you know, the people that have made some of these things that we, some of these films that we really love. And I'm really looking forward to talking to him. So I'm excited for to hear both of your thoughts on the movie. Mike, any closing thoughts on that? Uh, no, other than I'm, I'm excited to watch it. I, uh, I'm, and I'm excited that you're going to, you know, follow up with that and have a have a good show on it. So I uh, I haven't rented it yet. Like Adam, I, I've got stuff to do today, so I can't just rent it today. But I, I will get it watched. I promise you that. Excellent. And, and it's very much a product of the 1980s. And you'll understand after you see the movie. But I will say this. Kurt Fuller is in the movie. He's in the movie and he's fantastic. That's all I'm going to say. Love Kurt Fuller. 
All right, like we like to do with every episode, we want to give the listeners an opportunity to find the movies that we're talking about. So I'll go ahead and go through my three picks first, then I'll turn it over to Adam, and then we'll close it out with Mike. So Funny Farm is available on all, it's available on all rental platforms. When I say rental platforms, I mean the, the big ones, YouTube, Google Play, Vudu, Apple, PlayStation Store, Microsoft. Uh, it is also available to stream on the Stars uh, streaming app. And Miracle Mile is currently available uh, to rent or to own on Amazon. And that looks to be the only platform that I was able to locate that. Cliffhanger is available to watch for free on the Crackle streaming app. That is the Sony Crackle streaming app. And much like when we recommend movies on Vudu or Tubi, this is ad supported, so you will get some ads that are going to be laced, not a whole lot, but throughout the film. That um, is also available on all your standard renting, uh, streaming rental platforms. So, Adam, your three movies today. Uh, real quick, I just want to say sometimes watching a movie on a streaming platform that is ad supported can be very funny. Like last weekend, I was watching 8mm to write an article about it, and there'd be like a scene where Joaquin Phoenix is like, the devil's going to get inside of you. And then it would cut away. And it's like Alaskan cruise lines. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty cool. Um, Okay. So for mine, um, rounders, you can stream on stars on the app or on stars on demand. Um, It's also available for rent and purchase on PlayStation, YouTube, Google play, Apple, and voodoo sudden death is available to rent on PlayStation, Amazon, and Google Play, or purchase on Amazon, PlayStation, Google Play, or Apple. And Platoon is currently streaming for free on Amazon Prime, the Roku channel, and Vudu, and available to rent and purchase pretty much anywhere. Um, Amazon, uh, YouTube, Google Play, Apple, PlayStation, Vudu. Okay, excellent. Mike? Kicking and Screaming is currently streaming on Netflix. If you've got a Netflix subscription, that's the best way to watch it. It's also available for rent or buy on all your major streaming services. It's currently actually really cheap to buy. It's only $5.99 on all the major streaming services. So if you want to just spend the six bucks, I don't think you will regret it. Uh, But it is available on Netflix. Crimson Tide is basically available on all major streaming services for rental or purchase. It's not streaming anywhere for free right now, but it's readily available everywhere. And then Reanimator is available for rental on all the major services, but the best place to watch it, and it's a it's a service that hasn't come up yet on this show, but I want to kind of just talk about it for a second, is on Shudder. If you're a horror fan and you're not subscribing to Shudder, you are really missing out on the best streaming service for horror movies. It's five bucks a month. You can also add it as a channel through Amazon channels. Or if you uh, like some of the other services offered like Crunchyroll, you can subscribe to Verve, that's VRV, for 10 bucks a month and you get access to about 10 different streaming services. But Shudder, I can't recommend highly enough. That is the way that I would recommend watching Reanimator. Rather than renting it, just pay five bucks for a month of Shutter and check it out because I think you will you will continue to pay for Shutter once you've checked it out. Okay. So uh, that's how I would recommend watching it. All right, well, gentlemen, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to join me on episode on volume five of the 20th Century Movie Club. Adam, I am looking forward to like every year. F This Movie Fest, which is coming up this Saturday. And if people would like to follow you on social media and if they'd like to keep up with the work you do at F This Movie, where can they find you? Sure. Um, yeah, you can find me at 
fthismovie.net or you could go fthismovie.com or Google search it. You'll find it. Um, it's the letter F, this movie. The information about F This Movie Fest you can find on the top. There's a tab that says F This Movie Fest 2019. It'll give you all the details. It is, again, Saturday, March 9th at 10 a.m. Central Time, and it runs throughout the day. Or you can find me at on my Twitter handle at Risky Adam. That's R-I-S-K-E. A-D-A-M. Excellent. And Mike, if people want to follow you on social media? I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter, and also I am at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you can find the continually updating list of every movie that we've talked about on this episode. So if you want to go back and see what we've recommended, just search uh, either follow me on Letterboxd or just search 20th Century Movie Club. I updated about 48 hours after each episode airs because we want to give time people time to watch their, or listen to the episodes before I spoil what we're talking about. But it's there uh, along with the... Uh, episodes that the movies are recommended on and i've also updated it to add whose recommendation uh each movie is so if you start to get to know us a little better and kind of are like hey i like dana's taste i i want to see what movies he recommends because i really like what he has to say you'll be able to see that now adams will be on there as well so uh we'll just i'll keep updating it so please follow me there excellent perfect adam thank you so much for being on the show i want to Take this time to say that you're always welcome back on the 20th Century Movie Club, and I look forward to having you back on soon. And Mike, thank you as always. I know that you and I have got, we're going to be doing another episode in just a, just a little bit today, so we're going to be welcoming Ashley back to the show. So Adam, Mike, uh, thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.